subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for conversations with veterinarians, oncologists, rehab therapists, and other experts discussing amputation for dogs and cats. Find more info, helpful care tips, and a free gift at tripods.com slash radio. Thank you for tuning in to Tripod Talk Radio, where we're spreading the word that it's better to hop on three legs than limp on four. Hosted by Jim and Renee and Wyatt Ray of the Tripod's blogs community at tripods.com. Jerry's Place for canine amputees and their people. Hello, and thank you for listening. Today is Thursday, June 22nd, 2017, and this is Tripod Talk Radio. Today we're having an important discussion for all pet parents, but especially those coping with cancer in their cats and dogs, like the majority of all new Tripod's members. When our pets get cancer, one of the first things we want to do is change the food. But with so much information out there, it's often difficult to determine exactly what's best to put in their bowls. That's why today we're honored to have veterinary nutrition expert, Dr. Jennifer Larson, on our show. Dr. Larson is Associate Professor of Clinical Nutrition at the University of California at Davis. She has extensive knowledge about pet food nutrition needs, and today she's sharing some of her best dog and cat cancer diet tips. So let's get started. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Larson. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Hey, Dr. Larson, this is Renee here, and um, we are thrilled to have this discussion with you. Thank you so much. Me too. This is a great topic. Awesome. Well, I know you've made it your life's work to to help our pets eat better, and you're one of the the most well-known experts out there on this subject. So, um, we really, really appreciate this. Um, a lot of a lot of people, uh, when their pet gets cancer, they they panic, and and food seems to be the one thing we all have within our ability to kind of wrap our heads around when it comes to this disease. But um, there's also a lot of misinformation out there, and um, a lot of things that, as you know, that aren't um, fact based or science based, things that don't have studies behind them, um, that are making their way around the internet. So. Um, Today we just want to get to the basics and and cover nutrition and cancer in our pets um, and and talk about that with you. Yes, you're right. Cancer can be very scary. It's often a very devastating diagnosis for a family. Yeah, totally. And um, I've had it happen once to to my dog, um, and I know people have had to deal with it multiple times. So um, the, the first thing that a lot of us kind of, uh, want or are or, or led to believe based on a lot of information on the internet is that um, maybe what our pets ate caused the cancer. You know, we always want to know what, why did this happen? And um, I know that we did a survey at Tripods a few years ago where we asked people, what kind of cancer did your dog have? And um, what were you feeding the dog prior to the diagnosis? And even the dogs who ate a really healthy diet, it seemed, um, came down with cancer. So um, then a lot of people say, well, it's, it's got to be the commercial pet food. It's got to be the kibble. Um, my dog ate 
ate kibble. And I, I thought the same I thought, thing. I thought the terrible food I fed my dog caused him to get osteosarcoma. So can you tell me, based on, on everything you know and your, your professional experience, um, can commercial pet food cause cancer? You're right that commercial pet food is often blamed, as well as other things potentially in the environment like lawn care chemicals or other types of environmental pollution. But the bottom line is that we really don't have any evidence that firmly links diet to cancer prevention. And it's really a complex subject because cancer is really a term that encompasses a lot of different diseases, really, and they don't all behave the same and they don't all develop the same way. We do know that certain cancers are more common in certain breeds, which probably suggests that there's some genetic susceptibility to those cancers. And owners that receive a cancer diagnosis for their pet are often devastated. They are upset, and they want to know why, and so they're often seeking those types of answers. There's also a little bit of a guilt aspect, and a lot of owners really blame themselves for this happening, but the truth is we don't have a lot of evidence to support any firm links, and so it's not something that we can predict or prevent at this point. I I totally hear you on the the guilt aspect. Um, I totally felt that way when when our Jerry got diagnosed. So, um, yeah, and and it's uh, it's the easiest thing for for us to try to to change in in their daily life. But but first, um, I want to I want to get clarification. What exactly happens to their bodies when when cancer happens? So. Again, that really depends on the exact type of cancer it is and how that particular cancer Mm -hmm. behaves, in addition to the part of the body that is affected. So, for example, if a specific type of cancer is going to develop in the kidneys, then you're probably going to see different effects than if that same cancer was going to develop somewhere else, like in the intestinal tract or maybe in a bone or something like that. And so sometimes you'll see things like even um, bone fractures from tumors, and that might be something that you experienced with your dog, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if tumors develop in the intestinal tract, you know, symptoms like vomiting and diarrhea can be a cause. And then if they're affecting an organ like the liver or the kidney or something like that, that can also cause dysfunction of those organs, and you would see symptoms that were related to those specific things. I get it. Okay. So, you know, cancer is is just one term for for many different kinds of illnesses within that category, and all those illnesses are going to affect our animals in different ways. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's correct. There there are some basics that all cancers share. They're really just cells that have damage to the DNA, and that damage then allows them to reproduce uncontrollably or not die when they're supposed to die normally or to spread to other organs. So that's sort of the basics of cancer biology, but beyond that basic and the more sophisticated behavior and the hormones and other compounds that they excrete are widely variable. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so then there's the matter of of their diet and and how I you know I understand it all plays out differently, but um, in general, how does a disease like this affect their their daily nutrition needs? There isn't a lot of evidence that dogs with cancer have different nutritional needs than healthy dogs, so we don't know that that's the case. 
But we also need to consider the dog as an individual, meaning that the particular cancer that's affecting that individual and the way that we're treating it may cause things to happen that we need to consider when we're developing a dietary plan. So for example, if the cancer is affecting the stomach, then maybe the animal is going to have problems passing through food through the stomach in a normal way. They may not be able to eat orally at all, and they may need a feeding tube or even need to be fed um, IV, so intravenously. So that's really going to be variable. We also need to consider the treatments that we do. Some cancers are best treated with radiation therapy, which requires anesthesia. And when animals undergo anesthesia, we have to fast them. And so we're probably going to be reducing their food intake over that period of time on purpose because they need to miss meals in order to safely undergo anesthesia. There are also some drugs that can influence the appetite. Sometimes these drugs cause an increased appetite, so often steroids like prednisone can cause an increased appetite. But a lot of the other drugs that we're using, either to fight the cancer or to address other side effects, can suppress the appetite. So we need to think about those things, mm -hmm. too, when we're developing an approach for a particular animal. Okay, and when you say um, developing an approach, how how do these approaches get developed? I mean, is this something you do for clients? Because um, I know a lot of people try to do it on their own. And um, how does one go about um, getting a nutrition plan made up for their, their cat or dog? So nutrition plans can happen in consultation with the primary veterinarian that's treating the cancer. So oftentimes that's going to be a general practitioner or an internal medicine specialist or an oncology specialist. An oncologist is a cancer doctor. And those veterinarians are going to be considering um, the whole animal and any concurrent diseases. Cancer often, but not always, develops in older pets. And so older pets are more likely to have multiple diseases that need to be considered. And when they're being treated for cancer, their conditions aren't going to be the same, stable every day or week to week. And so it's best to have a veterinarian there that knows what's going on. And so if diarrhea develops or suddenly the dog has a poor appetite or something like that, that they can respond to that really quickly. There are some veterinary nutritionists, so specialists in nutrition for dogs and cats, um, that are at veterinary schools and some in private practice. Um, and most of us do remote work um, if we're not local to the primary veterinarian. Um, if we are local to the primary veterinarian, a lot of those nutritionists will see clients and patients directly, so you can bring your pet directly to see them. Otherwise, they consult with the veterinarian that's in charge of the case. Oh, I get it. Okay, so um, so somebody like you would work with directly with my veterinarian. <laughs> Excuse me. It wouldn't be um, like I would call you up and say, hey, doc, you know, my dog's not eating today. What can we do? I would go to my veterinarian, and then they would contact you. Is that correct? Yes. Unfortunately, there's, there's laws that limit how much specific advice I can give a pet owner if, they, if I haven't met them directly and established that relationship with them. So the vast majority of my workload actually is working with veterinarians for patients that I never get to see. I do have patients that come to see me directly, um, but I work with veterinarians around the country and all over the world. And so in those cases, I never get to meet those pets. Oh, okay. Okay. And, and you're out in, in California at UC Davis, one of, our, one of our awesome vet schools in this country. So um, thanks for all the good work you do there. 
Yeah, the good thing about being able to work remotely, though, is that our services are available to anybody, really. Really? How so? Well, I mean, I work with veterinarians that are in other countries, so Dubai and Australia and Israel, um, as well as, you know, across on the east coast of the United States. So that means that the services that we can offer are available to anybody, even if you don't live within a 50-mile radius of where I am. Yeah, yeah, that that is so cool. Um, so, you know, we hear a lot on on the internet about um, <laughs> a cancer diet, a miracle cancer diet, and there's a gazillion out there and and a million different websites devoted to this subject. Um, a cancer diet for pets or for people? Um, is there such a thing? I mean, I, I you know, have you run into this before? Those, those diets are um, typically recommended for can- cancer um, treatment, so not prevention. So now, you know, those are two separate things, right? So now we're dealing with pets that have already had a cancer diagnosis, and people are interested in either slowing down the cancer spread or enhancing the effects of treatment to make those treatments more effective or, or similar goals. And I wish that those types of um, diets existed, but, again, there's not a lot of data that that helps. Um, There are very few studies that have shown that any particular diet or any particular ingredient or any particular nutrient is beneficial for animals with cancer. Uh, Yeah. Okay. So, so let me ask you this, just from my my own personal knowledge, um, at what point is there enough evidence for a, a scientist like you to say, okay, this has been shown to work and I would feel comfortable recommending it. I mean, at what point are there enough studies and and how does that happen? That's a great question. And it's actually a huge challenge when you're dealing with something like cancer, which again, it behaves differently, even if it's the same cancer in different pets, but you would need a Mm -hmm. pretty large number of pets in humans. Clinical trials are often thousands of people. We often don't have that luxury in veterinary medicine. A lot of our studies, are 50 animals or less. And so when you have a research result that shows some promise, you sort of are extrapolating that data to the pet that's in front of you, and that may or may not apply. So it would be nice if we had individual studies with well-controlled diets. And what I mean by that is if you're looking for a specific nutrient change and the impact of that, you would need to not change anything else about the diet. So, of course, designing those types of diets and making sure those studies are that well controlled so that you can really work out what's happening is really expensive and really time-consuming, and it takes a lot of effort. And then repeating that in large populations of dogs for every type of cancer and potentially also in conjunction with different types of treatments would, is, is really a huge undertaking. Yeah, you know what, on a, on a, a show, a Tripod Talk uh, show we just did a couple of months ago, um, we had Dr. Donna Raditic from the um, Companion Animal Nutrition and Wellness Institute, and um, she is currently leading a, a, a study such as the one that you're describing. I mean, it's going to be huge, but she did describe how, you know, it does take a very controlled environment to, to put forth a study that you know, will be um, published and, and reputable and everything like that. And that's on our other Tripod Talk radio show from, I think it was May of this year. Um, but it's a, it's a big subject, and there's just there's so much that, that we still don't know. And 
you know, everybody wants to, to throw in a, a new supplement or, or a new type of food because we all want our, our pets to beat this disease. In your experience, what is the most important thing that we should know before we change anything about our pets' diets if they have cancer currently? My primary goal is always to make sure that I'm meeting the basic requirements for that pet. Primarily, we want to meet the energy needs, so providing the amount of calories that that individual pet requires. And sometimes that can be a challenge, as I mentioned Mm -hmm. before. Sometimes appetite's negatively affected. And your veterinarian can help with some ideas to try to um, adjust medications or um, potentially sort of address these food aversions that a lot of these pets get. So sometimes that may be as simple as changing the location of where you feed your pet or changing the bowl type, sometimes changing the diet type to sort of break those negative associations when they're feeling ill from their treatment or from their underlying disease, they are going to associate it with their diet. So so that can be a huge challenge, and that's something that we want to tackle to make sure that they're eating enough calories. Secondarily, we want to make sure that they are eating all the essential nutrients that they need. That includes everything from protein and amino acids to all the vitamins and minerals that they need. Dogs require about 40 essential nutrients, so we want to make sure that they have good nutritional status so that they're able to be a little more resilient when they're going through potentially surgeries to address their cancer or chemotherapy or radiation. We want to make sure that their immune systems are strong and that, um, you know, they can get up and move around and be more mobile and feel as good as they can. And they really need to meet all their essential nutrient needs for that to happen. So those are my my primary goals. So then how you meet those basic goals can be done a lot of different ways. It can be done with a commercial Mm -hmm. food. It can be done with a balanced homemade diet. All those things really depend on the family and what works for them. Um, you mentioned uh, two things that, that really uh, we, we talk about a lot at Tripods. Um, one, boosting the immune system, and um, two, a, a balanced home-cooked diet. Um, can, can you elaborate on these two things a little more? Um, can you tell us, like, the immune system, like what kinds of things um, do you typically recommend for, for boosting the immune system during treatment? Well, the immune system functions best when the animal is at a good nutritional plane. So, again, eating enough calories Mm -hmm. and especially eating enough protein, so making sure that their protein needs are met. There are also a lot of um, micronutrients, so some of the vitamins and minerals that are required in the diets at really small concentrations are really important for the normal function of immune cells. So all of those things are really important. As far as potentially specific supplements that might help and those kinds of things, oftentimes those types of supplements and nutraceutical products have very weak evidence that supports Mm -hmm. not just their efficacy, meaning how well they might work, but also their safety. One thing that Mm -hmm. we are concerned about is interactions between some of those compounds with each other and with nutrients and with medications. So I usually recommend that those are used with extreme caution. I'm not somebody that will recommend a lot of supplements, especially because we don't know if they're safe, which is my primary concern, and more so we don't know that they're effective. Right. right. You know, the, I, I, the interaction between between supplements and, and medications, I mean, the list can go on and on. It's huge. And um, an average pet owner like myself, you know, that, that's, that's a lot for us to think about when we're throwing stuff in our, our pet's bowl. So, 
you know, a lot of times um, we we might think about a, a home-cooked diet, like, oh, that's got to be simple and basic, right? And and you mentioned the term balanced um, balanced homemade diet. Can you um, tell me a little bit more about that? Because I know you've done some tremendous work on that subject. Yeah, home-cooked diets can be a great option for a lot of pets. A lot of them find them quite palatable. And a lot of owners really like that aspect of caring for their pets. They enjoy cooking. Um, It's a very caring and loving thing to do for your pet for a lot of people. However, cooking for your pet requires some financial time and space resources. So it's more expensive than commercial food, and it can be more time-consuming, and it requires some space. You might want to consider having a chest freezer and a bunch of different containers and things like that. So the logistical part of it is something that should be considered as well. So as long as those things are okay for the family, then um, a home-cooked diet can be an option. So home-cooked diets, though, most of the ones that we evaluate are unbalanced because they're often not supplemented appropriately with essential nutrients, and they weren't formulated by somebody that has appropriate expertise in nutrition. And so we always recommend that home-cooked diets are best used when they're customized. So the ones that are published in books and on the website um, are often not only not balanced, but they're not customized to the individual. And in my opinion, that's the most Um, beneficial use of a home-cooked diet, and that's really what the advantage is, is that you have the ability to really customize it to the individual. So having a customized approach is really important, and again, working with a board-certified veterinary nutritionist to make sure it's appropriately balanced is really important, and those services are widely available. Yeah, so it's not like all veterinary nutritionists are our scientists who say, you know, no, you can't do a home-cooked diet because it's not evidence-based. I mean, you're, you are willing to work with, with pet owners on, on this kind of thing, with their veterinarians, of course, but, um, but it's not something that you would totally shun because there aren't enough studies to support it. Is that right? Oh, I spend most of my time in clinics formulating home-cooked diets. Oh, cool. That is really neat. And what are the kinds of, of diets that, that you would – send to a, a veterinarian i'm just i'm totally curious like what what kinds of meats or or things like that i mean i know you can't be you know totally specific but um in general um can you give us an idea of what it is that you recommend for certain pets yeah sure um the the exact ingredients that are used are partly dependent on what the dog wants to eat and what the owner wants to cook of course We certainly have some Mm -hmm. families that have um, allergies within the family, so the human members of the family can't touch shellfish, for example, or something like that. And, again, this is another benefit of the customized approach is that we can avoid certain things or include certain things. I have some people who are clients that are ranchers or farmers and they want to use something they have ready access to. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, likewise, they are located in a really remote location and their grocery store doesn't carry things that I would normally rely on. And, you know, Amazon doesn't always deliver to everybody. So, um, mm-hmm. so some, of the, some of the things we consider are um, the tolerance of the individual pet. So um, do they have any problems with um, higher fat diets, for example? Fat is great because it's tasty. It provides a lot of calories and a small amount of volume. Um, and so it gives us a lot of um, benefit. But some dogs have problems with fat. So they have a history of pancreatitis or maybe the fat levels in their blood are too high or something like that. So when I'm thinking about designing a diet, I think about everything related to that dog, the medical history and how they did while they were on certain diets, um, what 
their body condition score is. So are they perfect? Are they too heavy? Are they too thin, et cetera? And then thinking about choosing ingredients, I like to choose ingredients that are common and that are pretty consistent from grocery store to grocery store, region to region. So a good example is um, like chicken breast or chicken thigh and white rice. I'm pretty confident that the types of chicken that I can buy in my store are pretty similar than the ones that you can buy in New York or in Alabama or in the tundra of Canada or something like that. So, <laughs> so, so I have to be pretty confident that what's in my database and what I think the profile is is pretty close to what's going to end up in that bowl. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely, um, because uh, we uh, – Jim and I, who um, managed the Tripods community, we travel around a lot in our RV, and um, I tried doing uh, a home-cooked diet without the <laughs> advice and, and suggestions of somebody like yourself, and I failed miserably at it because as we traveled, I was just finding um, – I, I wasn't doing it right. I wasn't looking at um, consistent ingredients across the country, and, and it was kind of hard for me um, – but uh, one thing that um, I found interesting was, like you said, like I, we would be in rural Colorado and we would have a, a huge supply of elk meat available and elk bones. And then um, that would dry up when we left. So I'd, I'd have to switch Wyatt's diet. And it was kind of a disaster, <laughs> in, in other words. And, and so I really appreciate there are people like you out there doing this um, for people like me because I would love like a consistent, you know, tailored diet for him as we, we move around the, the country in our, our RV. Um, I, I'm curious, um, when you mentioned the meats, um, what about organic versus non-organic? Is, is there a difference that you see? No, there's not really a nutritional difference. I certainly have owners okay. that have okay. philosophical reasons for choosing organic over conventional, if you want to call it that, um, types of ingredients, mm -hmm. and that's fine if they want to. But organic is really just a, a marketing label. It doesn't really influence the nutritional value or anything else about the diet. A lot of people believe that it means, for example, that um, certain um, crop-based um, foods are pesticide-free, but that's not true. Organic pesticides are used um, in organic mm -hmm. farming. So I think there's a lot of misinformation about what organic and terms like natural and such mean. Oh, there's a lot of, yeah, <laughs> for sure. I mean, we get these terms thrown at us every time we go to the grocery store. We're like, how do we know? <laughs> we don't. Right. So so people, we, we shouldn't feel guilty if we can't feed our pets, you know, the the organic diets that are out there, right? I mean, it's just, it's do what you can do. So. Absolutely not. I think that pet food marketing in general is not a situation where you get what you pay for. And remember that the marketing that's used to sell pet food and toys and other supplies to pet owners, those are the same techniques that are used to sell baby and kid supplies and things to um, parents. So this sort of guilt-based marketing um, is really, really common. And there's a lot of marketing in the pet food industry that seems to have the goal of making pet owners feel guilty and to spend more money on specific types of diet. So I, I could talk for an entire hour about that. I think that um, I, don't, I don't agree with that type of marketing. I think it's perfectly okay to spend what you can as your family and, you know, use criteria for choosing pet food that's based in science and not that emotion and that marketing. Mm-hmm. 
I, I totally respect where where you're coming from on that. And, you know, with, with your scientific approach to everything, I love how you can cut through all of the messages and just look at that because, you know, for somebody like me who doesn't have the scientific background, it's, it's much easier to fall into the, um, well, I'm going to go with my emotions just because it's easier. Um, <laughs> so so I, I really appreciate what, what you're doing in, in helping to find these diets for, for our pets who, who either do or don't have cancer. Um, one, one more thing, we have a, a couple of minutes left, and, and it kind of relates to the cancer topic, but what about grains? What, are, what is your perspective on, on feeding our, our pets grains? I know that's a huge topic, but if you could just kind of condense it down a little bit. Um, so grains are used to supply primarily carbohydrates, but they also supply some protein and some fatty acids, depending on which grains. A lot of people avoid grains, but we have to remember that the term grains refers to a lot of different types of plants that are not necessarily genetically related. They, so mm-hmm. they share some attributes, meaning they're the seeds of specific types of plants, often like grasses but they don't really share a lot of the same um, nutritional profiles and the same DNAs and the same proteins and those kinds of things. And so a lot of people worry about allergies to grains and so forth, but that's really uncommon, Um, even though they do Mm -hmm. provide some protein. Most of the animals that are um, confirmed to be food allergic are allergic to um, meat sources. So Grains are not something that I avoid, and carbohydrates are not something that I avoid. Um, And this is a topic that often comes up when we're designing home-cooked diets as well as commercial foods, because remember that the protein source is going to be the most expensive part of the diet. Now, of course, a lot of dogs find Mm -hmm. that to be very palatable as well, so it's often sometimes the most palatable part of the diet, but it's often the most expensive part, so it's going to drive how much the diet costs the owner to make. It's also not very Mm -hmm. environmentally friendly to use a lot of protein. And so carbohydrate sources such as grains are a way to provide really valuable energy, which, again, is a really, really important and the primary part of food and why we eat food and one of the things that we meet the requirements of our animals of without driving the cost Mm -hmm. too much. And it's more environmentally friendly and more sustainable to not use protein for those needs if we can avoid it. I I love those words that you just said, environmentally friendly. I mean, that's that's awesome, and that's a really good way to look at um, at why we shouldn't feel badly, or you know, or, or, or fall into that guilt trap about feeding grains to our pets if they can tolerate it and it doesn't have any harmful effects. I mean, why not? It is more environmentally friendly than feeding our animals a, a ton, a ton of of meat. So I, I love that perspective. Thank you. Yeah, the the reality is that we're all competing for the same food on this planet, <laughs> so we we all yeah, have to share yeah. it. Um, the the other thing about grains that that they can supply is fiber, and fiber is really unappreciated. It's a really important nutrient, um, and there are a lot of low fiber diets out there, and some pets do just fine on them. But fiber can be really useful, so we don't want to forget about that. It's often overlooked. Oh, you know, when when new tripod uh, parents are dealing with recovery, they suddenly find out how important fiber is in their their pet's diet because the pet comes home from the hospital and they're not pooping because they're all filled up with surgery meds. And um, and they're like, help, how can I get my animal to poop? And we're like, oh, my God, you know, get it moving along. Let's get some, some grains or some pumpkin, some kind of, something in there to help help move the poop along. So, yeah, grains do that. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Well, well, Dr. Larson, thank you for taking time out of your busy day today. We really appreciate all of all of this information. It, it does help cut to the chase in in so many ways. So, thank you so much. It was really fun. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Larson. Listeners can learn more about the work you're doing at vetmed.ucdavis.edu and find this and all past Tripod Talk Radio podcasts, along with many more helpful pet cancer resources, at tripod.com. Until next time on Tripod Talk Radio, learn more about canine amputation recovery and find the best gear for three-legged dogs at tripods.com. Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for more pet amputation tips from experts. And claim your free gift just for listeners at downloads.tripods.com slash podcast.